0: Broke my heart because i couldn't dance you didn't even want me around and now i'm back to let you know i can really shake them down Do you
1: Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we are back, Bill, talking once more about love.
2: Yes, and uh, we should wish you a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Scott. Uh, Today is Scott's birthday. So uh, you probably will not be listening to this on his birthday, but happy birthday to you, Scott.
1: Well, actually, we might put this out on my birthday. Oh, all right. Very good. We'll put it out. Happy so, birthday to you. Thank you. Happy, Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, I wonder who Trump would have sing that to him. Uh, himself. Man, yeah, he, exactly. he would he
2: was look in a mirror and sing it to himself.
1: Yes. So we're going to talk a little more about Halek, love, the God of love, all things right. loving. And
2: uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of the relationship between love and knowledge, and the idea of the inner connectedness between eros and agape. And he takes his inspiration from St. Augustine. matter of fact, we'll read a quote from Halleck talking about Augustine. Uh, And let me see, I just lost it here. Okay, here we go. Um, But St. Augustine poses to all theophiles. That's our new favorite phrase that he invented.
1: uh, As opposed to theologians. Theologians. Theophiles.
2: Uh, (laughs) Yeah. A question. What? how can I love something I don't know? And another question comes back to him like an echo. And how could I know something that I did not love? Thus, Augustine introduces into the fundamentals of Christian philosophical and theological thinking, the platonic hermeneutical circle, mutual conditionality of knowledge and love. And he amplifies it. After all, it is not possible for me to love what I don't know. And I can't really get to know something I don't love interesting ideas. You know, I've always thought that um if you're ever listening to someone who's really good at what they do, all right? So maybe even I uh, it maybe doesn't have to be a genius, but if you if you're listening to a an amazing scientist, a microbiologist or a quantum physicist or a sculptor or, or a a great carpenter or a a, a wonderful chef when they're talking about their craft or their science or their knowledge that uh, you can tell they love it, I mean you know again, it's a rough lifestyle, but you think of these great brilliant chefs who work twenty hours a day, or uh, these scientists who forget to eat, <laughs> forget to sleep because they're on this quest, uh, whatever they're looking at, whether whether it's on the prep table or under the microscope or through the telescope, or if they're running. The very long logarithms. They they love what they're doing. They love there's something about the art of whatever their expertise is that they love, and that's part of what makes them great at what they do.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. John Frame, who's a reformed theologian and philosopher, said, you know, he he talks about like um, in, in several places. I think he does this actually. he Talks about how roughly, if you think about philosophy, there's three main um, branches, right? There's like, there's metaphysics, you know, study of being, What what right. is there, what there? you know. And there's epistemology, kind of the rules of the road, how do I know what I know, the rules of thinking. And then there's value theory or ethics, what's beautiful, what's good, what's mm-hmm. the good. So you know, well, where do you start? Well, some might say, well, we start with epistemology, but then it, it's not long before you need to figure out how to apply those rules to something in the world. Or, you know, well, let's start with metaphysics, what's real. Well, are they going to start with rocks or flowers? Which you draw more to? Or, you know, like, and these kind of things where he, he was talking about sort of the pericretic nature, the interpenetrating nature of the discipline. So they all are so conditioned on each other mm-hmm. that they need to – that you need that sort of interplay. And I think the same thing with, with – you know, we talk about, like um, – Objectivity, although we don't talk about that anymore, maybe objectivity. Maybe we need to talk more. But, <laughs> but like, there's a subjective nature, right, to all um, knowing. So, somebody that is really good at something like botany or astrology, well, there's a reason they're good at because they chose stars over flowers or starfish over uh, over daisies or something. You know, if they're in my, uh, if they're marine biologists Jerry. Marine biology. I wanted to be an architect, Jerry. <laughs> uh, you know, but that so I think that that's actually, and again, I think that far from that being a liability with regard to pursue the truth, it's the ultimate asset being right. a lover of the object.
2: Right. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of um, the great great athletes are usually ones who they they may not love working out, but they they love to practice. You know, they they. Uh, you know, it was interesting. Uh, I even think of my own sons. They, uh, they were good soccer players, but soccer was work. But lacrosse was, which brutal. You know, they broke all their bodies from it. But, uh, they, uh, there was, they loved the game. And that that was a whole difference. And, you know, one, you know, uh, one of my sons is still coaching. He loves the game so much. He, that's part of his vocation. So, yeah, I think that's. And I just, I,
1: I just want to have it be known I met all my fitness goals for today. That's right. Because he got a, um, uh, Apple Watch, Apple my Watch. lovely wife for my birthday bought me an Apple Watch. It's so cool. I don't really know what it does yet, but it does do a great job on fitness counting, counting, and counter, but it, counting. But you said
2: it told you to breathe. It told you to stand up.
1: It did tell me. It has not told me to use the restroom yet.
2: Yeah, as we were walking back from uh, from our drink, it yeah, didn't it say to you you need to get better friends.
1: I think it <laughs> yeah did yeah it, yeah. I think so, it did say you that. could hang out with a better class. of Yeah, people, so
2: really. uh, again, who who. Uh, uh, that may be the perfect combination of love and knowledge, the Apple Watch, because the Apple Watch loves you and it's getting to know you.
1: <laughs> it is. It really. Uh, it's <laughs> Siri, it's like Siri's getting closer to me in an entirely new fashion, which is just. Yeah, which is interesting.
2: Interesting. That's not the first
1: word that came to my mind. Yeah, curious.
2: He, um, you know, it's interesting uh, talking about Augustine. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating in the book of Confessions is his own kind of, uh, which I still think is I think next to the Bible maybe the most, one of the most, the most important Christian book that you should read. I, I really do because I think so much of our sense of self modern, you know, the birth of Western sense of self, personality introspection, spirituality it's it's, there, it's all there in so many different Doesn't
1: Aquinas quote Augustine like 2200 times in the Summa and never disagrees with him once?
2: Well but that's a little... <laughs> <laughs> he, I think he does disagree with him, but he, Augustine is the second most quoted source in the uh, in the Summa. The Bible's the first.
1: I don't think there's a quotation where Augustine is right. handled like right. as a negative example. Yeah,
2: but but the backstory there is, you know, the the Franciscans versus the Dominicans, and he does. He 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 reinterprets Augustine at times or or, or whatever, but well, that's what fair, everybody does. Yeah, I know. But what I'm saying is he 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 will say he corrects Augustine at, at times. But yes, I mean he. It's very fair to say that Thomas Aquinas is an Augustinian thinker. Yeah,
1: as, as is everyone in the West. Yeah, uh, yeah,
2: I think so too. But one of the things that's interesting to me in Confessions is his own kind of puzzlement with himself. If, if you don't, if you've never read it, in some levels it's a It's a spiritual autobiography. It's kind of his journey, and it's a conversation with God. And he's constantly puzzled with himself. Uh, I mean, that's part of the rhetorical ploy of the thing. He's constantly, why didn't you understand us? What was wrong with you? And things like that. But I think part of it is his own puzzlement of, you know, often people get hung up on the sex stuff, but his failure to be integrated. You know, I think his failure to, why can't my – uh, body listen to my will. And I think for him the the most incredible lack of integration is how come my knowledge and my loves were so disordered? Uh, matter of fact, all of Augustine's theology and his ethics could be talked about through the lens of love. But in this famous passage, I think this really reflects a little bit of what um what Halleck's getting at. This is the famous passage, book ten, verse twenty seven. I have learned to love you late, beauty at once so ancient and so new I've learned to love you late. You were within me, and I was in the world outside myself. I searched for you outside myself and disgusted, or I'm sorry, disfigured as I was. I fell upon the lovely things of your creation. You were with me, but I was not with you. The beautiful things of this world kept me far from you, and yet, if they had not been in you, they would have had no being at all. You called me. You cried aloud to me. You broke my barrier of deafness. You shone upon me, your radiance enveloped me. You put my blindness to flight. You shed your fragrance about me. I drew breath, and now I gasp for your sweet odor. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am inflamed with your love, with love of your peace. Well, it was beautiful, I think, passage ever written in Christian, or for that matter, any kind of spiritual work. Um, but there's a sense where, um, his aha moment when he was able to say yes to the grace of God and, and, and was, you know, his, his, after he was baptized and growing into faith was this integration of realizing that what he was seeking after, uh, his pursuit of knowledge and, and fame and other things, you know, he, he was really chasing after, after love made perfect in, in the knowledge of God and that, uh, his desire did not have to be his enemy. But could be the very thing that led him to God.
1: Yeah, right. And I think you know when you read in Augustine, right, justification for him is something akin to the healing of the will, right? Oh, yeah. And that, that yeah. and, and that's sort of a, it's the best theological word ever: concupiscence. Like our problem for Augustine, right, is wrongly ordered desire. Right. It's that it's not that we're not lovers. It's that we're lovers of the wrong things.
2: Yeah, it's like what C.S. Lewis says in uh, my favorite C.S. Lewis thing, The Weight of Glory. Uh, it's not that we desire too much, it's that we desire too little. We settle for too little.
1: Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I think that is one of the paragon sort of insights in the human condition. Because if I can ask you or try to figure out what you think or what you know, even if you disclose it or if I can figure it out, I don't know you as much as if I know what you want, yeah. or what you love, what you desire, yeah. like your affections. If I know that, I know you. I I know a lot of who you are. And I think that is indicative of kind of how we're wired.
2: Right. Well, it's part of also why, you know, we, you know, when you're infatuated with someone or you, you know, there's these feelings of love. You just want to know everything about them. You know those early days when you're. Love- your
1: I love it. It's like release the house. Release the
2: house. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I love it. It's in a different room, but we're being called
1: to the
2: hands. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you you just you if you are if you love somebody, you want to know everything about them. I mean, um, that's why you know you delight, and uh, when your child comes home, tell me about your day. And uh, not just your child. Everybody would like to have someone to tell their day about and the gift of listening to someone about their day. You know, one of the things I think that a lot of Christians get wrong, um, and I think Christians of all, you know, irks get this wrong. Uh, uh, You know, the idea of of somehow that agape is what we're after. You know, agape is the high love and eros is is, – there's something inferior about it. you know, eros is the is the is the is human love. It's the love of desires, the, the love of need, and we are contingent beings. So we are constantly loving, and and you know, we're constantly desiring things because that's how we're that's how we're that's how we're built.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think that that eros. I mean, it, it, that's the love that. People say love is a decision, right? You hear that in marriage counseling all time, and there's a truth to that, like because we're, our love shape our commitments and right. our ideals and things like that. But I think on one level, though, you you can't control who you fall in love with, and it's it's right. just any more than you can control like what you find beautiful. You know, there's that scene right. in Pretty Woman where they say that you know it, people have two reactions to opera. You know, right. either you, you love it. Or if you don't officially love it, you may learn to appreciate it, but you'll never really I love it. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something to that 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 we are, you know, we, for all the talk of the the bondage of the will, and I think we can get into phils- right. philosophical right. debates about that and theological debates, but existentially, it's just true: our will is bound. Like it, it 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 is drawn to things, especially in matters of love, that we can't control. And and what's interesting is. What we find beautiful, we love, right. and what we love becomes beautiful. This is why someone you can fall in love with someone, and all of a sudden they look different to you than they oh, used absolutely. to look. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. You yeah. know, it's interesting too that this idea. The trouble with the like the Christian counselors that say love is a choice, it is, but there's a high percentage of it is an unconscious choice, and that's part of it. That's part of what uh, when those unconscious things start coming to fore, where they're working out the fact that you may actually have chosen a significant problem for you in a, in another person because you have to work out that stuff and you may or may not be able to to work that out and if particularly if it's unconscious it's going to it's 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 going to it's going to work out poorly so i think that's exactly right i think in some levels you know, i i love that uh, uh francis called the body brother ass yeah, yeah. yeah, so you know as and as rough as he was in his body he would still say you know we need to we need to love brother ass and I, I think uh I think Eros you know in even some ways biblical pa- passages are translated. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who was um long story short um they were dealing with a person who felt the very fact that they were sexually attracted to somebody was sin. And um
1: God help us all, including especially Jimmy Carter. Well,
2: <laughs> what I'm saying is uh that is a person, unless that gets gets rearranged, is never going to be able to have a successful relationship because it's all so twisted. The idea that you it's not the desire. I mean, having sexual desires means you're alive and you're human. It's what you do with those desires. And I think that the way that we get sloppy about desire and sometimes the way biblical passages are, are translated. You know, I think eros gets divided from agape in a way that is psychologically unhealthy. So that's you know, I had a I once I uh, had a psychology friend of mine who uh, came out of the brother in Christ the holiness movement, and he said that uh, the, the holiness movement kept him in business as a psychologist. <laughs> I think that could be said of a lot of evangelicals, yeah, you know, and other Christians as well, but. Yeah, the repre- repression is n- repression is not virtue, because it's 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 uh, it's failing to to understand that eros is is not the problem.
1: I had a friend who saw a biblical counselor in Morgantown, West Virginia, and the guy advertised. I'm a biblical counselor. He says, "Okay," uh, he's and he sets the Bible on the table. He says, "Every the answer any question you have is in this book." And my buddy goes, "Well." how do I uh, bleed the brake lines on my Hyundai? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, so yeah, there's limits I, to it. I
2: think that's in Leviticus.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think also, like, in the relationship to the love of God, there's this really interesting piece in Frank Lake where he actually mentions Augustine, and he's talking about schizoid personality disorder, which we would think of, I think, as a severe early trauma. Uh, it, it he His own...
2: Yeah, it's the old dimmit. that's the DSM yeah. early DSM one or DSM two. Yeah,
1: and he says you know the schizoid personality disorder has at least some of its roots in innocent infantile affliction of great severity. And he talks about like how this works. Um, uh, he says that the innocent affliction of the Son of God affects a reconciliation between the Creator and the oppressed sufferer is the claim of the Christian faith. It offers a possible meaning to existence at its worst, and the minister of the gospel must know how to communicate it. Medicine itself offers no meaning and no ultimate remedy. And then he says this. He talks about people that are afflicted with with this sort of severe splitting off from self and what happens when they write theology. So when schizoid theologians write theology largely by introspection, they distort it in a Gnostic direction. (laughs) Faithful introspection reports accurately that at the roots of such a man's being, there is no personal God, only a cosmic ground of being, Nobody comes in out there. He feels no personal presence. Religious feeling is genuinely absent. He has no primitive memory of a secure cosmos centered in a source person who comes in answer to his need. He was not allowed to live securely in the light of a woman's countenance. His spirit truly exists at depth in a godless chaos. Natural mysticism and religion can offer him no credible external objects, and his dread of trusting the out there makes him very suspicious and a little contemptuous of those who naturally think of God in these terms. He can only hope to sink down into a subpersonal ground of being below the chaos. He tries to seek out the fundamental relationship or synthesis whose prototype is in the womb and in the earliest weeks of monistic, undifferentiated union with the mother God. This form of psychologically conditioned theology emerges in every age within the church itself. Origen failed to combat his natural Gnosticism, uh, With the gospel, Marcion failed to combat his. Augustine broke with his Manichaean past. Erasmus failed to overcome his detached intellectualism. The frankly irreligious honesty of certain Cambridge theologians (laughs) arouses only hostility in those whose metapsychology is based on a cosmos in which the schizoid affliction has no part. A clinical theology should at least attempt to interpret these difficulties acceptably and to mediate without losing touch of eye with either viewpoint. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's bold. I, it's interesting
2: cuz I I find I think he's wrong about origin by the way, but that's okay. Yeah,
1: I mean it's an interpretive kind of yeah, gloss right. on origin, but I mean I think what he's saying there is that you know, in, you think of someone like Paul Tillich and they Oh hey, yeah, that's hey, who, I was thinking it, Paul it, Tillich yeah, the wait, whole time. He just, he, yeah. but, but that's interesting that they wind up being allergic to these personal metaphors right. of, for God because that undifferentiated thing, like th- th- they yeah. were safest before they broke with their sense of identity in the womb and realized that, you know, there's a self-emerging that's different than the source. Yeah. And so this desire to get back to undifferentiated union without an I and a thou is fascinating. And, it is, and, it is. and I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a loveless approach to life and faith by its very nature. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's actually part of what I find consistently deficient in Buddhism.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, it is, it is something that if, if you're seeking.
2: They're gentle, peaceful folks and they're good people.
1: But if you think the I thou is fundamental to reality and and what human being is about, because, because in Buddhism, that's the I thou is the deficiency that you want to escape. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, you know, this idea of um the connectedness of them. Uh, now here uh Halleck is quoting from um uh Pope Benedict, Ratzinger, but it was I, I think he wrote this when he was Pope.
1: He's always Ratzinger. <laughs> um
2: he says, um he, that Pope Benedict emphasized that Christian love is not just spiritual agape, it can never abandon Eros. Eros without agape degenerates into something merely instinctive, while agape without eros becomes dull, idealistic extraction. I mean, it's actually that desire, you know, and that God desires us. You know, our hearts are restless till they find their home in God, which Augustine said. But, it's that, but that restlessness is what gets us there. Absolutely. And the idea that God desires us. I mean, there's a sense where that there is something that— Maybe the whole story, I mean, creation to the, you know, incarnation to the crucifixion is that God desired us because he didn't need us if classic understandings of God God are correct. So he must have just wanted us, which is desire.
1: Yeah. Bart says that the heart of the covenant is God with us, Emmanuel, like the desire for God to be with us. and. And to, and that is, I think, the bomb in Gilead that that the gospel offers to human life, that you are desired. Like, when you feel yeah. undesirable and alone, and when guilt and shame and affliction weighs you down, that actually, at the heart of the universe, as like would say, love makes sense. And that love is one that desires you.
0: Amen. I have seen the morning burning golden on the mountain in the sky. Aching with the feeling of the freedom of an eagle when she flies. Turning on the world way she smiled upon my soul as I lay dying, healing as the colors in the sunshine and the shadows of her eyes waking in the morning to the feeling of her fingers on my skin Wiping out the traces of the people and the places that I've been. Teaching me that yesterday was something that I never thought of trying. Talking of tomorrow, the money, love, and time we had. Loving her was easier than anything I'll ever do again Coming close together with a feeling that I've never known before She ain't ashamed to be a woman Or afraid to be a friend I don't know the answer to the easy way She opened every door in my mind But dreaming was as easy as believing It was never gonna end Loving her was easier than anything I'll ever do again